The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All the way down through about verse 30, he uh, talks about the reality that for all of us, life involves suffering. Uh, that to be God's children doesn't exempt us from difficulty. Uh, and it would be really easy to think, you know, if we're God's children, if He really loved us, if God really cared for us, you know, He would spare us from difficulty. He would spare us from hardship. But Paul says, no, don't misunderstand what it means to be God's son. We are in a position of incredible privilege, of great future glory. We are the focus of God's love and attention. And we should never doubt that. But we shouldn't view God's love based on how well life goes for us here and now. He says the reality is we will suffer with Him. Uh, but he goes on to say that we, it, as we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. We will also share in His glory. Uh, so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each of these three sections of, of how Paul explains how he helps us deal with the difficulty and hardship in our life. Uh, he says it's a reality, but he also says there are three very powerful truths that will help us. So this morning we're going to look at the first one, uh, which has to do with the idea of endurance and persevering. Um, you know, we live in a, in a time when people have become somewhat like over-the-top obsessed with endurance and with endurance feats, right? And there's all kinds of endurance races. There's an endurance horse race. Several, I mean, there's a whole class of endurance horse races where they race these horses for forever. Uh, there's endurance car races like the Dakar, you know, where they race from across Africa uh, for days on end. There's endurance dog sled races like the Iditarod where they go for days and days. Um, and, and, of course, uh, the biggest category of all are more running events, marathons, ultramarathons, Ironman triathlons, and now that's not enough. There's double and triple Ironman triathlons, as if one's not torture enough, right? And, uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, if you said, oh, yeah, I ran a marathon, people would be like, wow. Now it's like, you know, a, a marathon is simply a warm-up for the really big races, right? Uh, and here's this, there's this crazy guy named Dean Karnazes. He's 42 years old, at least when this article is written from San Francisco, and he has written the book Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, he decided to run a marathon, but for the warm-up for the marathon, he ran 100 miles from his house to the starting line of the marathon, right? And he timed it so that he got to the starting line of the marathon just as the gun goes off, so that he could, you know, with a little 100-mile jog, go run the marathon, Right? That's just nuts. That's just nuts. Um, so, but that's nothing. He, 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 uh, he ran 262 miles, 260 miles, uh, all in one shot. The equivalent of 10 back-to-back -back marathons. Right, 10. I don't know how long it took him, but just the fact that he did it and didn't die is incredible. Um, one of his most amazing feats is he's, he's uh, run the... 
the Death Valley Kyle's Badwater Ultra Marathon. It's a 135-mile marathon starting below sea level in Death Valley and climbing up to almost the top of Mount Whitney, 135 miles. He won it. Not only did he win it, after running through this 130 degrees heat, all this huge altitude claim from below sea level to like 8,000 feet up, but he, after he finishes it, that wasn't enough. He climbed the extra 11 miles to the top of Mount Whitney, right? There's something wrong with this guy. There's something seriously wrong with this guy. Um, and they ask him, you know, what, why do you do this? He says, the appeal of ultramarathoning is that I think I can go farther. Okay, now I've never thought that. I've run a marathon, and I thought that was far enough. I never thought, I think I can go farther. Um, he says, I think my endurance is still improving, and I'm always pushing the envelope for even further. And it's kind of a rage now in, in, in ultramarathons and all. Um, and there is something incredible and impressive about what the body can do and the sense of endurance. And, uh, and it, it, is, it is shocking, really, if somebody puts their mind to it, how far you can go. And uh, in our modern world, uh, really, we've, we've come to narrow this idea of endurance to that, that, you know, that venue of running or these, these races. Um, but really, endurance is a quality of life that should be true of all of us. And it's, it should be true of all of us because it's something that comes really out of God's own character and nature. Man, believe it or not, did not invent endurance. God did. Uh, and it is something of his nature and character. Now, of course, endurance means something completely different for God because for God to run 260 miles is no big deal, right? He can run 262 light years, right? Take that in your endurance pipe. And, um, you know, but for God, endurance means something very different. It's not about what he's able to do physically. Uh, for God, endurance has to do with dealing with us, right? The, the context for God's endurance is putting up with us. Right? That's the test of God's endurance. And uh, the Psalms, many, many places speak of God's love uh, as his steadfast, enduring love. Uh, one of my favorites is in Psalm 138. It says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Great promise. The Lord will fulfill, will accomplish all of his purposes in our life. The psalmist says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, God's love will never wear out. Um, Ultramarathoners will. <laughs> they may be able to run 135 miles and do it Mount Whitney, but there does come a point where you drop dead. Okay? There, there is a limit. With God, there is no limit to his love for us. His steadfast love endures forever. And so uh, being part of his character, being part of what God is, God wants us to understand something about endurance. And he wants us to develop in our lives this, this attribute, not just in our ability to run far, go great distances, but to, like him, endure with a love that is steadfast, that is unshaken, unmovable, right? And so uh, this plays into this picture of suffering. Uh, our suffering has something to do with God producing in us endurance, uh, something of his own heart. Um, so let's look at, at verses uh, 17 through 25, which we're going to look this morning. Actually, we'll start with verse 18. So he drops this bombshell on us, 
you know, if you suffer, then you'll share in God's glory. And he backs up a little bit and he states what this suffering is about. And in verse 18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, with endurance. Literally, the word there could be endurance. We wait for it. Um, Well, Paul, in this passage, reveals a a, a few principles that are important for us. And the first thing he talks about is that life is hard. Uh, Life is difficult. Uh, God does not promise us easy, smooth sailing. Uh, those who claim a gospel that, you know, that if you really trust God, if you really believe in Jesus, he's going to make you wealthy, he's going to prosper you and give you perfect health, uh, just aren't dealing with reality. They're not dealing with the full uh, weight of what Scripture teaches. Paul says, uh, if you suffer, and the if condition there is that you will, it's a certainty. If and you will suffer with, with Christ, you will share in his glory. Um, but he says here that the suffering is not, is not to be compared with the glory that's to come. So the suffering in our lives is real. Life is hard. Uh, and it's hard for lots of reasons. And I don't, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but um, here's a few. It's hard because we, uh, we suffer because we live in a broken world, right? We live in a world where sin has been turned loose. And it's effects and its consequences are everywhere. We are the source of other people's suffering. Other people are the source of our suffering. We're sometimes the source of our own suffering because of our own sin and foolishness, right? We live in a world where sin is not completely in check. And even though God has brought us salvation, uh, sin runs rampant. And as a, as a result, we sometimes get abused, hurt, and wounded at the ill intent and will of others. Just heard a horrible story from our, my hometown, Denver. This last couple of weeks, a ten-year-old girl was kidnapped uh, and brutally murdered. Brutally murdered, and they just found her body a couple of days ago. Horrible for that community. Um, there are sick people in the world who will do evil and wicked things. That's part of life. Uh, we all deal with the struggle of the curse. We live in a world, as we'll see in a moment, that's under a curse. And the, the earth is not able to yield the full benefits that God intended it to. It's cursed. It's full of weeds. It's full of difficulty. It's full of hardship. And so uh, where we're sometimes we've, we experience direct abuse because of sin, sometimes we just experience 
the lack of resources from a world that's not functioning as it should. Um, uh, you know, there's greed, there's corruption, there's inefficiency. Uh, the world does not produce like it should. And so we, we suffer the, the loss of that. Uh, chances are most of us in the room, maybe a few of you are quite independently wealthy, but probably most of us feel the pain of limited resources. Anybody raise your hand to that one? You wish you could have more. You could do more if you had more resources. And because of the way things work in the world now, for those of us who live and work overseas, outside of our home country, we deal with uh, what little we have dwindling as lots of people take a piece of our pie, right? Taxes, admin fees, this fee, that fee, right? Takes our little pie and shrinks it down and shrinks it down. And, uh, and then there's the, you know, the falling currency rate. Uh, if you lived here 10 years, if you were fortunate to live here 10, 15 years ago, uh, when the bot was at 42, 44, life was good then, right? At 30 to the U.S. dollar. Now, if you're, if you're from Europe, you don't feel maybe pay, the pain as much, but um, maybe. That hurts. It cuts into our resources. And I love it now. Now, as if, as, you know, with the little tiny slice of pie you got left, now, uh, at least in the United States, bank, bank companies, banks, are now charging a 3% fee to any time you use your bank card or an ATM machine. So, you know, what used to be 100% got cut down to like 75% and then got down to 60% and 50%, and now they're charging 3% on that, right? And so you start out with $100, you end up with about 4 right? And uh, you're just like, man, where, where'd it go? Well, it's this world, this world system, right? There are, there are limits, and we feel the strain and stress of that. We feel the strain of, of limited resources. Um, there are... Uh, the brokenness of relationships, the brokenness of being sinful people that can't always get along, right? So, so that's one thing. We suffer because we live in a broken world. We suffer because we live in a broken body, right? Uh, the, the truth is, beauty fades and strength diminishes, right? I used to have lots of hair in the right places, now I have very little hair in the right place and lots of hair everywhere else, right? And I don't really enjoy that, especially living in a hot and humid country, to be just wearing this rug around all the time. Uh, I used to run marathons because I could run. Now if I were to run a marathon, it would be described more as a crawl uh, because I'm not as fast as I used to be. I don't have the strength and health I had, right? And the reality is that's the way life goes. You know, that's the way life goes. I don't care what doctors, health plans, this, that, or the other thing that they promise is going to keep you young. Okay? They're just taking your money. You're not going to stay young. You're going to get old. Okay? No matter what you do about it, you're going to get wrinkles. Uh, things are going to sag. Things are going to slow down. Right? Um, I hope you can stay healthy and fit, but it's not guaranteed. And not only that, but our, our bodies in this sinful world, broken, are subject to, to sickness and disease and death. Right? We pray for healing. God calls us to pray for healing. But we are still subject and subjected to the fall. And our bodies will deal with disease. And we will get cancers and we will get heart disease and strokes and dengue fever and colds and flus and injury. Right? We suffer. Just being human, we suffer those things. Um, 
Thirdly, we suffer because of our faith. Okay, on top of all that, as Christians, oftentimes we bring on ourselves further suffering, further persecution, because we are walking in obedience to God. Uh, you, and I know some of you, have lived in countries where because of your faith, because of your witness for Christ, the government decided you're not welcome there anymore, and they kick you out, right? And you suffer the hardship and loss of the pain of that, right? Uh, even here sometimes, the government's not overly accommodating and welcoming, and they, they you know, would be happy if you would leave, you know? And we suffer at the hands of immigration officers and other people, um, uh, maybe your families don't appreciate the sacrifices and what you were doing to serve and follow God, and they may harass you. Uh, they may persecute you because uh, why do you have to live so far away? Why do you have to do this? You know, there's, there's sick and dying people right here in our country. Why do you have to go to another country to be helpful? Show God's love here, right? Because I don't understand, right? And so we suffer. Uh, sometimes we suffer just the... the uh, the difficulties of living cross-culturally. It's hard. When you walk in obedience to Christ and he sends you to another country and you don't know the language and you don't know the culture and you live far away from family and friends, it's hard, right? We would, we would love to be closer to our family, to our friends. Uh, I don't know about you, but this time of year is painful for me because people start putting up on Facebook these beautiful pictures of fall back in their home countries, you know. Leaves turning in. There's actually a change of seasons, Right? And here, every day is just the same. More hot, more humid. I look at my little, my little weather forecaster, and as far out in the future for eternity, it just says, hot and rain. Right? And you're going, oh, man. These people, they get to enjoy a change of season. I just envy them so much, right? And there's, there's suffering that goes with that. Not painful suffering, but it's hardship. It's hard, right? We get homesick. Um, so Paul says this is part of life is this is part of what it means to be following God living out life and we're not unique to it as Christians uh, unbelievers suffer as much or more right? suffering is part of life being God's child doesn't deliver or rescue from that um, but that's not exactly that's not exactly encouraging <laughs> okay you're suffering, you're having a hard time, and I don't know right now in your life what you're struggling with. You know, right now, what is hard for you? What is the hardship? Is it past wounds that you're dealing with, trying to heal from? Is it present wounds that are being inflicted on you? Is it, is it the isolation of being in a foreign country alone? I don't know what's hard for you right now, but God knows. And it doesn't help for me to sit, tell you, well, it's just supposed to be that way. Just suck it up, you know. What's wrong with you? You're supposed to suffer. Don't you know that? Not real encouraging. <clears throat> right? So Paul gives us some encouraging words. Um, and at first, it may not sound very encouraging, but as we unpack it, I hope you'll see that it is. He says this. He says, I consider, uh, I reckon I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Um, the, literally, you could say it this way. Uh, you could translate it this way. The sufferings of this present time have no weight, have no weight, compared to the weight of glory to be revealed in us. That word there has the idea of, work, of weight or weighing something. So it's a picture of putting 
our suffering, and our future glory on a scale. And he says, if you were to weigh these things out, to compare them, okay, which would be heavier, which would be more substantial or significant? He says, if you put them on the scale, our suffering is, has no weight at all compared to the weight of our future glory. There's no comparison. Right? It, it easily tips the scale to the side of glory. Right? When you compare what we suffer now with what lies ahead for us. Um, and he's not saying here that our suffering is not real. He's not trying to discount your suffering. He's not saying that, that you're weak because you struggle with these things. He's not saying that at all. He's saying our sufferings are very real. And Paul understood suffering. Uh, he, he went through a lot. But he's saying this. He's saying when you weigh that, as difficult as you are going through now, when you weigh that up against what lies in store for us ahead, there is no comparison. Because what is in store for us is so great, so weighty, so significant and substantial. It will make our present sufferings like nothing. Like nothing, right? Uh, He says, we have this future glory that is huge, that is substantial and significant, and that will erase all our current pain. Um, And he says that this present glory is about to be revealed. It's on the verge of being revealed in us. Uh, The idea there really is of an unveiling. Uh, Have you ever seen, I've never actually seen this live, only in movies and on TV, but where they have some kind of art exhibit, some sculpture, some fancy piece of artwork that they're going to unveil. And they have an unveiling ceremony. And they put a big sheet over it, and they get lots of people to come around, and they eat little expensive hors d'oeuvres and drink champagne, and at just the right dramatic moment, right, somebody cuts a cord and the, the sheet falls off and unveils this beautiful uh, masterpiece, right? Well, that's the picture that Paul's painting here. He says, this glory is about to be unveiled. That it's, and this is the incredible thing is he says it's already resident in us. Uh, the work that Christ has done to redeem us, to make us his children, has put in us this incredible glory, it's just nobody can see it because it's veiled. It's covered up. It's hidden for the moment. But some future day when, when Jesus returns and he restores his final judgment, his final coming, he is going to unveil the work that he has done in us. And people will see and we will see what we are fully in God. Glorious, glorious. Uh, now, sadly, here he doesn't describe what that is. Uh, uh, he gives some glimpses of it we'll see in a second. But he doesn't really give us a lot of detail other than to just say, it's going to be spl- splendid. It's going to be huge, right? The glory that will be revealed in us. First uh, John gives us a little clue when, when, when John writes this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Same thing Paul just said. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Hasn't been revealed. Hasn't been unveiled yet. But we know that when he appears, that is, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right? I don't know what that all means, but someday we are going to become just like Christ. We are going to be transferred. We are going to see him and our life is going to be unveiled and our sonship in its full glory will come to the surface and we will be as glorious and radiant and, and in every way in the perfection of all that Jesus is. 
We will be uh, astonishing as people. And the, the, the beauty will come back, the strength will come back, far beyond what it, what it is now, right? We are going to be good-looking people. We're going to be people who are like, wait, wait, whoa, man, that guy is buff and strong and good-looking. Man, who is that guy? Well, that's Tim. Wow. Would never have dreamed it. Right? Right? We are going to be fully in every way, not just outwardly in our body, but in every way, glorious, glorious beings, glorious beings. Um, so so that's, that's kind of the introduction, and he, Paul teases us with that. Uh, but he goes on and he uh, gives a, an example, kind of an object lesson, if you will, from nature or creation. And so he continues on with these words. He says in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for this revelation of the sons of, of God. Okay, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Um, so he, he turns away from us for a minute and he looks at creation. And if, uh, if we have to endure a long time, just imagine how long creation has had to endure. Depending on your view of how old the earth is, you know, uh, anywhere from 6,000 years to several million or billion, whatever the case, creation has been enduring under the fall and under the hardships and sufferings that we as human beings have brought on it for a long time. And, and Paul says that creation uh, eagerly waits, or it says waits with eager longing for this revelation, this unveiling of us as sons of glory. Right? Uh, and Paul uses two words here, and it, it kind of can get lost in the translation, but they're two very strong and powerful Greek words that spell out or create a picture of intense longing, of great expectation. The first word uh, means uh, intense anticipation, strong and excited expectation. Now, if you read this word in English and you see the word waiting, oftentimes for us, when I think about waiting, I think of like a doctor's office, you know, where you're sitting in a doctor's office and, you know, you're just there forever, right? And you're just waiting, and it's very passive, and um, nobody really wants to see the doctor anyway, so there's not a lot of anticipation in it. You know, you're not excited about this. You kind of know you need to go, that's why you're there, but you really don't want to go. And it's this very passive, uh, subdued, resigned waiting that's bored, right? That's tedious. Well, well the word that, that Paul used has nothing to do with that. Nothing like that. It is a word of intense anticipation and excitement. A straining. The word, the word literally, the first word literally means straining the neck to see what's ahead, right? You can use this picture of somebody looking ahead to see what's coming ahead. Straining forward. Excited about what's coming. And he, he uses this to describe creation, these two words. Um, both words describe that. The second word, uh, I think I forgot to tell you, means waiting uh, with great expectation from a distance in time. So this, this word has more the time element in it, that we are, we are, we're stuck in time and we're far removed from what, what it is we're anticipating, but there's still the sense of great expectation. Okay, I'm longing for this to come. And he says that creation is longing for this revelation. 
Okay, every day when you walk by, the trees are going, wow, that's one of those children of God who is going to be unveiled in glory. I can't wait to see it, right? When you walk around, the trees are all doing that. You can't hear them, but they're doing it, right? Clouds pass by. Whoa, there's one of those children of God that's going to be unveiled. I can't wait, right? And it's been waiting, and there's this eager expectation and longing, looking forward to this day when we will be unveiled and our glory will be revealed. Um, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. If, you, if you've lived through the 70s, from you old people, Carly Simon's song, Anticipation, right? I won't say all, all the words, but the, some of the words actually fit quite well. We can never know about the days to come, but we think about them anyway. And I wonder if I'm really with you now or just chasing after some finer day. And then the chorus, you can all sing it together. Anticipation. I can't sing it, but... <laughs> Anticipation. It's making me late. It's keeping me waiting. Right? That's creation. It's, it's anticipating, waiting for this moment. Uh, and tomorrow we might not be together. I'm no prophet, and I don't know nature's ways. So I'll try and see into your eyes right now and stay right here. Now this is where the song goes just all wrong and bad. Okay. I'll stay right here because these are the good old days. Well, she missed the point right there, right? Because creation's not going, these are the good old days. Okay? Creation's not looking us in the eyes going, I just want to cherish this moment because I love it the way you are right now. No. No, it's anticipating something way better. These are not the good old days. These are the bad old days. We're looking forward to the good future days when it's revealed. Right? So he says, he says uh, in verse 20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Right? What underlies all this is this constant frustration of creation. Okay, creation is living in continual frustration, he's saying. Um, and the reason is because it was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. That the fall, Adam and Eve sinned, God brought judgment on, on Adam and Eve, but also on all of creation. He subjected it to futility. Some translations use the word vanity. The idea is this, that God created the, the universe... Uh, for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. But he did it in a very specific way. And if you go back to Genesis, you look at what God did with the garden, it becomes very evident and clear that the garden, that creation, was a temple, was a, a sacred and holy space where mankind could live in God's presence and glorify him and enjoy him forever. Right? And creation had the unique and special role of being the place that facilitated this relationship between us and God. And it gave up its bounty, it gave its, up its majesty and glory and beauty and wonder as this sacred space, this sanctuary, this temple, where we would live and experience God. And there's some great pictures if you literally look through Genesis uh, in the garden, what that looked like uh, as God wanted us to be in a place where we would experience him and enjoy him and glorify him. And creation was to play a special role in that. The man blows it when he sins, and the creation is now cursed, and no longer is it a place where man really fully experiences God and lives with him in this glorious temple. 
And now it no longer is able to fulfill its designed, created purpose. And that's frustrating, right? If you've ever been good at something and not been able to use that skill or talent or ability to its end, especially when you knew it could, it could help, it's frustrating, right? Uh, if, you, if you have the skill of a physician and a surgeon and uh, you know you could perform a surgery, do something that would bring life or bring relief of pain to somebody, but your hands are tied and you're not allowed to do that, you would be frustrated. I could help, I could do something here, but I'm not allowed. Well, f- creation feels that frustration. It says it, it, uh, it's subjected to this futility, this emptiness. It wants to glorify God. It wants to provide this experience for you and I to enjoy the splendor and majesty of God, but it cannot, and it is frustrated. Um, but... He says that it's, it's subjected because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope. Right? God did not doom creation to this forever, but that one day there is the hope that creation would be restored to its original design and purpose. Right? So it will see final glory. And he goes on and he says in verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay? Uh, creation is, its hands are tied, it's bound, but one day it will be liberated and set free to use its God-designed purpose to accomplish for us and for God what it was created to do. Okay? One day it will be set free and it will join in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Great expression. Not only only will we be glorified someday, but all of creation will be restored to share in that glory with us. It will be returned to its original design as the temple of God, where you and I will experience and live in God's presence in this temple called the universe, nature, creation. And our future experience, uh, contrary to popular opinion, is not going to be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp, right? We're not going to live in heaven in some nebulous fog bank, right, of praising Jesus somehow, right? That's not how it's going to work. We are going to be uh, plugged into the middle of creation. And our glory and creation's glory are very much connected and tied up together. And you and I are going to experience and live out for all eternity um, the wonder of who God is in a restored universe that is perfect and that will have the chance to fulfill its, its purpose. Now, just a picture what this might look like. And I, um, I don't know what this is going to be like, but we can get little glimpses of it because even though creation has fallen and broken and not perfect, it still, I think, does a pretty good job of displaying the majesty of God in places, right? Uh, where is your favorite place in the world? You know, if you could go anywhere, anywhere in the world where nature shines, where would you go? Maybe to the top of some mountaintop, you know, and here's the deal. You're going to have glorified bodies, you know. Pick Everest. Why not, right? Because in that day, you don't need oxygen, right? You will have endurance and strength. You will run up Everest, right? And you will be able to stand on the top of Mount Everest and you will take in a restored, created glory and experience the God of creation and the wonder of his majesty on top of Mount Everest, right? And you'll be able to have adventures there with God that are indescribable. 
And you'll come back from that adventure and you'll write, because you'll have new ability to do this, you will write beautiful stories and songs. You will paint incredible paintings telling of your adventure. And you're going to stand up with a voice that's untainted and you will sing and people will cry and weep as you describe Mount Everest, right? That's our future glory. For you, maybe uh, your favorite place is, is, uh, is at the beach watching the ocean waves crash in, right? And you will have the opportunities to explore the depths of the oceans, right? And you won't need oxygen tanks. You won't need scuba gear, right? Because you will have a body that can just go to the depths of the ocean and see the wonder of what God has made, right? And it will be worship. It will be experiencing the wonder and majesty of the presence of God in ways we can't imagine, right? We can't imagine. Uh, where would you go? Uh, to see the brilliance of the sky set on fire by a blazing sunset on Mercury, you know? Where the sunsets there are just out of this world, so to speak. Uh, you know, that's what life will be for us when we are glorified and creation is restored and we live for eternity celebrating the wonder and majesty of God, creating with him music and art and, and gardens and, and forests and things beyond imagination as we partner with creation in telling the story of God's majesty and glory and power. Right? Uh, and the creation longs for that. Creation anticipates that day when it will be restored when we return to glory. So what does this have to do with us? Okay, back to reality, back to the life we're living now, which is hard, and in which uh, climbing mountains is painful, uh, enjoying nature is limited. That favorite place you would like to go to right now, you can't because it costs too much, uh, or it's in a country that's closed or whatever. Uh, Paul finishes with these simple words. He says, not only creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with endurance. Right? Um, he says, we, we have the first installment of this in the Holy Spirit. Okay, we know we have the first little down payment of future glory in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which has been a theme throughout chapter 8. Right? It's the first glimpse of what future glory awaits us. And uh, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us is, is a sign, is, a, is an installment of what is to come. But he says, even in spite of all that, even with the work of the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly, um, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Uh, we're adopted, but that adoption is not finalized completely until this body is redeemed. Right? We have new spirit, we have new life in Christ, but we're still in this body that's falling apart, that's very much a part of the broken world order. Someday we get a new body. We get a new life, a new self, a new uh, shell to live it out in, right? Um, but in the meantime, 
life is hard. And he says we groan. And life is full of groans, okay? Did anybody groan when they got up this morning? Okay, if you're old enough, you groan every morning when you get up. I'm there already. And uh, I used to just hop out of bed, fresh, you know, limber. Now I crawl out of bed. And it takes me, you know, five minutes to straighten everything up to its full, generally straight position, right? And it takes a while to get all the parts working together. Um, And uh, we groan. And like creation, part of our groaning is that we're getting old. Part of our groaning is because we suffer the circumstances of life. But like creation, part of our groaning if we're honest with ourselves and if we probe deep into our souls, part of our groaning is that we can't glorify God like we wish, right? Uh, do you ever read these stories, you know, of these great saints who just, you know, got up at four o'clock in the morning and prayed for four hours and worshiped God and the angels came down and they beamed with light, you know? You thought, boy, gosh, I would like that. I'm going to try this, you know? So, you know, there's no way you're going to do four o'clock, but five o'clock's early enough. I think the angels are still up at five, and you get up, and you're going to pray, and you're going to have this amazing worship time. You're going to read your Bible, and God's going to come down and speak to you, and it's going to be this incredible time of worship and praise, right? And uh, you open your Bible. It's five o'clock. You're blurry-eyed. And one detail that they don't tell you in the stories is that your brain doesn't turn on at five in the morning, right? And you don't know where to find that switch, and nothing happens. And you're reading your Bible, and by 5.15, man, you're snoozing, you know, you're just gone. And the only worship you're doing is in your dreams, you know. And you're trying to fight your, you know, oops, sorry. Stay, um, <laughs> trying to stay awake, trying to stay alert. And, you know, you read a few more verses and pretty soon you're doing the little tipsy-turvy thing, you know. And, and you finally stay awake after the third cup of coffee. You can actually read three whole verses without falling asleep. But, I mean, there's no angels. And there's no charge and there's no zip and there's no bang, you know. It's just this constant fight to stay awake. Well, you know, our bodies have limits, right? Maybe that works for some people. A lot of us, that's probably never going to work. Maybe after your 50th cup of coffee, you'll, you'll feel some, you know, something kick in. It's not going to happen, right? We don't have the capacity for it. Um, we are limited and weak and broken, Right? We still sin. We still mess up. We, we have a, and we groan, right? We groan. We, we want to love God more. We want to worship Him, right? We wish we had this life that was just soaring with God. And the reality is we don't because we're not there yet, right? We are still broken. And until this body is redeemed, we're not going to experience the real deal, we get only installments, little pieces through the Holy Spirit where we get little glimpses of it. We don't get the real full deal. And so it can be discouraging, right? And we get beat up and life kicks us and we get discouraged. So how do we live with that? How do we endure? Well, I think creation can teach us something here. And Paul says that. He says the key is living with keen anticipation. Right? The secret of the whole deal, what Paul's trying to say here, his main point is this. Yeah, life is hard. Yeah, you suffer. The way you get through it is to have keen anticipation of what is to come. That's what creation does. Right? It longs, it 
It, it expects the great things that are about to come, and it looks forward, it strains for those things. Do you strain looking to see your future? Right? Are you living with eager anticipation of what is just around the next bend for us? The next bend being when you die, by the way. <laughs> um, are you straining in anticipation of that event? Do you live with great hope and expectancy of what is to come for you? Or are you stuck in the doctor's office, bored out of your mind, in this passive resignation that life's just miserable and there's nothing I can do about it, so I might as well just, you know, plot along, right? It's not what God wants for us. Paul says we need to be keenly aware. We need to have this keen anticipation. In this, in this passage, and you, don't, you lose it in the English, but in, in the Greek, there's four uh, related Greek words. They're all very similar and connected. And these four words are used ten times in this passage. Ten times, right? And the words are, as I said, the one word dealing with intense anticipation. Um, the other word having to do with, with a strong, intentional waiting. Uh, the third word is the word we know, hope. But hope in Greek is not like our hope. Okay, our hope is like wishful thinking, uh, but a very uncertain wish. Right? In Greek, it's not that way. In Greek, it is uh, the anticipation of future events, good or evil, with a strong expectation. That's that's what the Greek word means. The word hope. Okay, it's not just wishful thinking. It is a strong anticipation of things to come. Uh, he uses that word five times alone in the last two verses, the word hope or hoping, some form of it. The last word is the, the word endure, which is a synonym of this idea of eager waiting. It is a steadfastness and a determination in the midst of waiting. Okay. When things get hard for you, when you are struggling, when life is groaning, what are you, what are you supposed to do about it? Well, Paul says you need to live a greater anticipation and expectation of what's to come. Right? We need to focus on our future. Um, what does that look like? Well, for me, the most vivid uh, picture of that is Christmas. Right? Christmas, not now, because I'm old and jilted and I'm you know, stuck in the doctor's waiting room. Right? But remember what Christmas was like when you were like 10 years old? And you, couldn't, you just couldn't wait for it to come, right? Do you remember those days? And uh, you, you would just get so excited, you would be like shaking and you couldn't go to sleep at night. You remember those? Remember that, how that worked? And you just, this longing anticipation of that day when Christmas was going to come and you were going to get everything you ever dreamed of. Maybe. <laughs> but you were hopeful, right? You are anticipating it. You were living, focused on that moment, right? And even though you had to wait, you, there's nothing you could do to speed it up. You endured it because you knew it was coming, right? Well, that's what the picture here Paul is describing. It's the idea of being focused on the finish. It is like, a, it, is, it is the ultimate of all ultra, ultra marathons, right? It's called the ultra marathon of life. And it is a long run, and uh, if you've ever run distance events, if you've ever run, which distance event, if you've never run, by the way, you know, half a mile is a distance event, <laughs> right? Uh, it's all relative. Distance is always farther than what you think you can comfortably do. When you're running any event, 
uh, how do you get through it? How do you endure? Uh, well, you focus on the finish line, right? You look forward to not the pain that you're in now, but what will happen when you get to the end and it, and it finishes? I've run two whole marathons in my life, and the second one was, it was a miserable experience. And um, what happened, it was called the Jesus Run. That should have been a sign right there. Um, and the idea was that you could raise money for missions or whatever. And so I had picked a missionary, and I was going to raise money for this missionary, and I trained for it. And um, about a month before the race, a little more than a month before the race, I got injured. And so I, I wasn't able to run the whole last month before the race. But I had already raised all this money, and I thought, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, if I don't run the race, do I tell these people, you know, I didn't run the race, can't give them money or whatever. This missionary was kind of counting on it. So I decided I can, I can tough this out and run this race. So I did it, and the first half went great. Piece of cake. First 13 miles, no sweat. Second 13 miles was just absolute misery. And everything crashed. I mean, just everything stopped working. And my legs started cramping up with severe pain. Uh, to the point that I couldn't run and I had to start walking all the time. And my blood sugar crashed, so I had no energy. And I just tanked. I mean, it was just miserable. And 13 miles when you're dying is a long way, right? And, uh, you know, it would have been easy to say, just give up, quit. You know, nobody cares. But something in me said, no, I've got to finish this. Yeah, I, have, I won't earn the money if I don't finish it. So I endured. Well, how did I endure well, it didn't do any good to be thinking about the pain of the present moment. That was not helpful. I had to stop thinking about the pain of the present moment, and I had to think single-mindedly on the goal, on the, on the, on the finish line, right? on the end. I got to persevere to the end. And I just kept thinking, you know, every step brings me one step closer to the final goal. If I keep going, I will get there. And that's what endurance is, Right? And Paul says, says that here. He says, keep the finish line clearly in focus. Uh, in his words, he says, he says it this way. Um, For in this hope we were saved. In this expectation, we were saved. Uh, not that it's a hope that we see, right? Because that's not hope. If we see it, it's not hope. It's distant. It's far off. It's a finish line that we cannot yet fully grasp or comprehend. But uh, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with endurance. Right? We live with great expectation of what God's going to do in our life. Right? Uh, do you have any picture of that? Uh, you know, the problem is far too often we resign ourselves to our current misery. We spend far too little time thinking about what is in store for us? Uh, is there danger in going overboard on this? Well, probably not. Because I don't think we're that good at it, right? I don't think we spend near enough time looking at our final destination. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.